0: As you are probably aware, this quarter we're going through uh, the sequence found in that great little book, Steps to Christ," as we looked ways to be closer and closer to Jesus and our walk with him. Two Sabbaths ago, the message was about how God truly loves us and the springfall. all of our motive with a walk with Jesus is the love of God, not our love for him, but His love for us, and we simply respond. And then last Sabbath, we looked at and recognized our need for Him, some of us do not realize yet that Jesus loves us and that we need him in our lives. But when we do, we come to a conviction that we should be closer to Jesus than we are already. Which then leads us to today's topic, which is repentance. You recognize that God loves you. You see your need for him. And now what? Repentance. But before we begin our study on any topic in God's word, let's, of course, begin with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful fall Sabbath day. Thank you that we can be here in your house, and thank you that we can now study your word in fellowship together. Please guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us not only to have a superficial understanding of our problem, but a deep-seated repentance brought about only by you and your Holy Spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Again, in that little book, we find this interesting definition or explanation. On page 23 of Steps to Christ, we read, Repentance includes sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. We shall not renounce sin unless we see its sinfulness. Until we turn away from it in heart, there will be no real change in the life. Genuine repentance. Now think about this logically. If there is a definition for genuine repentance then implicit to that, there's also something such as a false repentance. There's a counterfeit. If there's a true, there's a false. If there's an original, there's a counterfeit. So if the Lord has something called true repentance that he longs for us to have, then certainly there is a counterfeit repentance that might look like it, might seem like it, might smell like it, and sound like it, but in its very real nature is not what the Lord is looking for. For instance, we think of examples from the Bible esau repented that he had sold his birthright to jacob but did he truly treasure the responsibility that came with it or did he just want the privileges of the birthright of course he only wanted the privileges It wasn't genuine you think of judas iscariot with jesus christ when his plan unraveled he saw that it was it was total folly and he repented but if he had it to do over again or things might have changed in the outcome was he truly sorry he had betrayed jesus Apparently not. Now turn, if you would, to the book of Numbers, chapter 22, as we look at one statement that seems on its surface to be genuine repentance. It has the look and smell. It sounds just like it could be the real thing. Numbers, chapter 22, verse 34. It's from a gentleman by the name of Balaam. Balaam might be familiar with the name, probably know a bit about the story, but let's take a look at it in light of genuine versus counterfeit repentance. Numbers chapter 22, and verse 34, we read this statement. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have what? Sinned. I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. He admits his sin, he says he'll turn back, and it sounds from every human standpoint, like it's probably a genuine conversion experience. Genuine repentance. So how do we know it's not? and how can we tell the difference in our own lives between genuine and false? Today we're going to study the story of Balaam in a little bit more detail, and we'll can see what leads up to and then follows this particular verse 34. But let's go back to the beginning of chapter 22. Genesis, uh, Numbers, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 22, starting with verse 1. And we'll give a little background on this individual called Balaam. Now, Balaam was at one time a faithful prophet to, of God. He was righteous in his behavior. He was a messenger for the Lord. But he was not of the children of Israel. He was not an Israelite. Okay? In fact, the children of Israel at this point in their history were just coming out of Egypt The Lord was leading him through the desert way onto the promised land. He was making of them a nation for himself. And as they were at this point very faithful to him, they were going very steadily across the the territory of that time, striking fear into the hearts of the surrounding nations. And at this particular moment, they had come and encamped right next to the wicked empire of Moab. So we go to Numbers chapter 22 and verse 1 the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, that's with a K, not to be confused with Balaam, but Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So you get the picture, Moab is watching, all the Moabites and their king Balak are watching what the Israelites have done as the Lord has led them out of Egypt. And anyone who's come against them has fallen, and now they've come to camp right next to their territory. So they're shaking their boots, and they think, we have to muster some sort of defense against these people. And Balak decides on a strategy, not just of defense, but he decides to go on the offense. He decides to take a countermeasure against the encroaching power that is Israel. And he realizes that the only reason that they're doing so well is because they're blessed of the Lord. So he said, if their power is in supernatural assistance, maybe I need to get some supernatural assistance of my own. And he calls upon Balaam, the prophet of God, to curse Israel. So it says in verse 4, So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river and the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, this is important key in verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. Now, were they going to ask him to voluntarily curse? no. They say what you do is very important. In fact, it's a strategic strat It's part of the strategy that we have against them. Now think about it. If you were a nation, a king of a nation, and another nation were coming against you, instead of raising up an army, instead of getting all the military weaponry, you wanted one supernatural weapon to end it for you. If you were to develop a weapon system that would counter an entire people in one fell stroke, would it be worth some money to you? Absolutely. You think about it, even in our great nation, if we want to develop a new weapon system that we think will take care of other enemies that might be out there, it does cost a great amount of money. And they're putting all their eggs in the basket of Balaam, and so they bring a fee with them and said, "We're going to be very willing to make it worth your while. Curse these Israelites." Verse eight, and he said to them, "Lodge here tonight." And I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Verse 9. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak the king of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I should be able to overpower them and drive them out. Now, look at verse 12 carefully. Tell me if you see any obfuscation, any vagueness on the part of God. Verse 12, and God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Now, is there anyone here today who did not understand the Lord's response? Is the Lord saying to go or not to go? Not to go. Is he saying to curse? No, he's saying you can't curse it, you will not do it, for I bless them. Don't go, don't curse, they are blessed. Those are the three points that God said. Story continues in verse 13. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land. So far so good. But listen very carefully to the wording of his decline. For the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Now let me ask you a question. Is that true? Well, yes, it is true. But can you discern a, maybe a disagreement on Balaam's part with the Lord's declaration? You get the impression That if the Lord were to have allowed him, he would be more than willing. He would be quite eager to go with them. But the only reason he's not is because the Lord told me not to. For the Lord has refused to give me permission. By the way, did he also mention about them being cursed, uh, being blessed and you can't curse them? No. He simply says the Lord won't let me. That's it. Now, think about it from this other perspective. If you are these ambassadors from this nation, you might be inclined to think he's actually just trying to negotiate a higher agreement. Maybe he's just playing hardball. Maybe he's playing hard to get. Maybe we should try again. Didn't say it was impossible. He just said, will not let me right now. So watch what happens. Verse 14, and the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. He won't do it. Then Balak again sent princes, more numerous and more honorable than they. What is Balak thinking? We didn't put on a good enough show. We didn't make a grand enough invitation. We didn't make it appealing enough. Why don't we send more and more honorable? You were the guys with the second class. Let's get the top shelf, the highest level of emissaries to go on my behalf. Verse 16, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will certainly honor you greatly. And I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. So notice apparently they thought maybe if we up the ante, You name your price, we'll send the highest level, and we'll say, please, really nicely. Maybe that will induce you to come with us. Now, it sounds good again. Now, watch closely now. Verse 18. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold... I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. He could offer me everything in his house, full of gold and silver. Boy, that'd be nice. But I can't do it. Won't do it. Sounds like a man of principle. Until we get to the next verse. Now, therefore, please, he should just say, make your way home. What does he do? Please you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Now don't take off too quick. Why don't you guys stay around like the last guys did and I tell you what, I'll check with the Lord again and see if he wants to add anything to his original offer of no. Now has been the Lord been unclear before? No. But he kind of uh, uh, hesitates a bit, and he kind of lingers on the ground of temptation. And he says, I tell you what, I'm going to pray about this. Now, I'm not making application here in the real life yet, but maybe the Holy Spirit already is. But we know that there are sometimes things in our life we should not be doing, but because we don't want to stop doing them or we don't want to start doing what he wants us to do, we say, you know what, I'm not sure what the Lord wants. I tell you what I'll do, I'm going to pray on it a while. Before I make any rash decisions like, you know, stopping doing what I know is wrong or starting to do what I know I should do, let me just pray on it a little bit. Sounds very pious. Sounds very spiritual. But there's a real motive underneath it. We want to do what we want to do. Balaam makes big, I will not go unless the Lord lets me. And let me check with him to see if he's still. Verse 20. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, Now notice what the Lord does here very carefully. If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. It's like, don't worry, no cursing is going to come out of your mouth, but I'll make a deal with you. If they come and get you in the morning, you can go with them. Now we read verse 21. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Now, it kind of grazes by a rather important point there. Had the Lord put a condition or a stipulation on this going with them? Yes, what was it? If they come get you. There's no mention in verse 21 of them coming and knocking on his door early in the morning. Just as he gets up, He's ready to go, regardless of whether they come after him or not. Now, commenting on this, you can find this story uh, in a little chapter entitled Balaam in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, but let me give you a couple statements from here. First of all, on that whole, why don't you stay the night and let me check with the Lord? Notice what we find in page 440 of Patriarchs and Prophets. A second time Balaam was tested. In response to the solicitations of the ambassadors, he professed great conscientiousness and integrity, assuring them that no amount of gold and silver could induce him to go contrary to the will of God. But he longed to comply with the king's request. And although the will of God had already been definitely made known to him, he urged the messengers to tarry, that he might further inquire of God as though the Infinite One were a man to be persuaded. So, though he wants to be faithful to God and he's saying, No, I can't, inside he's saying, Boy, I wish I could. So, his actions are not in harmony with his motives. If it we're up to him, he'd go. If it we're up to God, he can't, and there's a tension there. He says, I'll go back and negotiate with the Lord, see if there's anything else he wants to add to sweeten the deal. Then, commenting on that next morning, when the Bible simply says he saddled his donkey and rose and went with them, notice what we read here. Again, this is page 441 in Patriarchs and Prophets. Balaam had received permission to go with the messengers from Moab if they came in the morning to call him. But, annoyed at his delay... And expecting another refusal, they set out on their homeward journey without further consultation with him. So the morning comes, and they're sitting around talking to each other. Balaam hasn't come out of his house yet to say anything, and they're like, you know what? All we're going to sit around here for is wait and wait, and all we're going to get is another no. The Lord apparently has been clear that he's not going to let him. What are we even waiting here for? And they saddle up their, their horses and donkeys, and they get on out of there, and they take off. And then Balaam comes out. You know, he's waiting in the room, waiting for them to come to him, right? Because that was the stipulation. If they come to me, then I can go. So he waits and he waits. Nothing happens. So what does he decide to do? Step out, and what's he see way off in the distance? A little dust trail of them headed out. And instead of saying, clearly the Lord's condition was not met, he runs after them and chases them. Hey, hey, don't you want me to go with you? He chases after them. Now, watch this comment now. Every excuse for complying with the request of Balak had now been removed, but Balaam was determined to secure the reward. And taking the beast upon which he is accustomed to ride, he set out on the journey. And check this language out. He feared that even now the divine permission might be withdrawn. If I can quickly catch up to them, that'll still count as them coming after me, and I can be inside of what the Lord has allowed, and I can go with them. He's pulling on every little phantom string he can to go with them. And he pressed eagerly forward, impatient, lest he should by some means fail to gain the coveted reward. And now the famous part of the story, and I like reading through it just because it's so fun that it's in the Bible. Look at verse 22. Then the God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Three times this donkey has been beaten by Balaam now. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, perhaps the greatest evidence that Balaam is not. Have you ever noticed that sometimes if you want something bad enough, you stop thinking clearly? You get so focused, so tunnel vision, so myopic on this goal at hand that you want to do what you want to do, regardless of what the Lord says. Even though I hear it in the background, you don't really listen. You don't pay attention. You don't see the signs, and all you're focused on is doing what you want to do. That even the clearest voice from the Lord is not even recognized. Notice this now. Some of the weirdest words in Scripture are right here. Verse 29 And Balaam said to the donkey, now it doesn't matter what he says, right? He's talking to the donkey as though that were normal. He is so intent on this that his mind is like, yes, donkey, and he just starts talking to the donkey. It reminds me of when the Lord in the Garden of Eden came to find the man and the woman. He said, he called to the man and he says, where are you? And Adam says to the Lord, it doesn't matter what he says, the jig is up, right? And he says, I'm over here hiding. <laughs> You're not thinking clearly. You're not making any sense. Balaam said to the donkey, Be, and listen to his lot. And by the way, think of his faulty logic here. Because you have abused me. Now, you read through that story. Who's been more abusive, Balaam to the donkey or donkey to Balaam? And by the way, in what position was the angel of the Lord standing? He was standing as an adversary, right, with a what? With a sword in his hand? Who do you think the sword was pointed at, the donkey or Balaam? What was the donkey doing? Saving his life, right? That crushed foot is nothing compared to, you know, being run through with a sword. But Balaam looks at this scenario and thinks that he is the victim. Because you have abused me, verse 29. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. It's like, you're lucky all I have is this rounded off stick. If this was a sharp pointy sword, it'd be game over. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? Is this the relationship that we have? Is this what it has come down to? <laughs> and this is the best part. He outlogics Balaam. And Balaam said, and he said, no. <laughs> it's like, anytime you're in the point in your sin where you're like, ah, you bring up a good point, Donkey. <laughs> something's off right and he says no then the lord opened balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the lord standing away with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face and the angel of the lord said to him why have you struck your donkey these three times behold i have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from you aside from me, surely I would have killed you by now, and then I love this part, and let her live. Donkey would have been fine. you'd have been dead. Now we come to verse 34, and Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, "I have sinned. For I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Taken out of the context of the story, it can sound like verse 34 is genuine repentance. But we can tell from the rest of the context that his heart isn't changed. In fact, look at very carefully, and we're going to look at this next week a little bit more. But look at the nature of his I'm sorry statement. What does he say again? Verse 34, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, pause right there. Did he know that there was an angel in the path? No. Did he know that the Lord was against his way? Yes. Oh, I've seen it from my own children. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yes, you did. I might not have said it right this moment. I might not have said it the way you wanted me to. I might have not come with a sword in my hand, but you knew what was right and wrong in the situation. Sometimes we parlay with sin a little bit, and we like to feign ignorance. Oh, I didn't know it was. Hey, you did. Yes, you did. Balaam knew. He's trying to play innocent. I didn't know you were standing in the way against me. And now, and Kent, watch watch this language also. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, he doesn't say, since it displeases you, I will turn back. Or simply because I've sinned, I will go back. Even in the light of this, he says, now, if it displeases you. Doesn't that open the door to the possibility that, you know, there might be a slim chance that I can still go, does Balaam, is Balaam repentant of his sin, or is he repentant because there's an angel with a knife at his throat? Sure. I will turn back. It sounds so noble, but it's not genuine repentance. Amazingly, the Lord does allow him to continue and let his life go on, but he tells him again, when you get there, When you open your mouth, I'm going to win. It will be blessing and not cursing. Why, by the way, is the Lord so adamant at this point that Israel will not be cursed? Because they're being faithful right now. Keep that in the back of our minds. By the way, does Israel even know that this battle is going on up about with Moab and Balak? and No. They're completely clueless just being faithful to the Lord, going about their daily business, and the Lord is running interference for them. He's fighting their battles for them. Just keep that in the back of our minds for just right now. But if you were to go through, and the rest of the chapters outlines what happens, and as, as Balaam goes up there and he... He tries all kinds of different ways. Balaam gets discouraged, and he tries one time this way, and he goes to another hill, and he builds an altar, and he tries these sacrifices. He tries every which way to curse, and all that will come out is blessing. And interestingly enough, during this blessing process that was intended to be cursing but ended up being blessing, Balaam was shown the future of Israel. He was shown what they were supposed to be what the, would have looked like if their mission had been successful, if they had not fallen away from the way of faithfulness. He saw the coming of Jesus Christ, and he even saw the second coming and the resurrection of the dead. You can read about him, in Patriarchs and Prophets. But even right here, look at chapter 24. I'm sorry, chapter 23, I'm sorry, starting with verse 8. The proclamation, the blessing... One of them, Balaam's first blessing that he, when he sees the greatness of Israel. Notice he says in verse 8, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him. And from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. And then he says in verse 10, Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the what? Righteous. And let my end be like this. How many times has this happened to us too? We see the appeal of a faithful life. We know that it's better. We'd love to have the reward that comes with being faithful to Jesus. Balaam saw the appeal of faithfulness and desired the Lord's approval. I'm guessing every one of us would love to hear a well-done, good and faithful servant. But do we want it enough to value that of higher estimation than other things that come along? He valued the earthly gold of wealth more than the heavenly gold of character. And though he saw what he should have wanted, and he wanted the results of and reward of faithfulness, his heart was not truly changed. You know, in many ways, Balaam and Moses faced the same decision. Both had the choice between the opportunity for a life of great wealth by displeasing God or to lead lives of humble faithfulness that would, be, that would allow for a closeness to Christ that would be its own reward. Think about this. Moses had to choose between the humble life of the Israelite camp or the grand life in Pharaoh's courts. Hebrews 11 tells us his choice, and it says in verses 24 to 27 of Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Balaam had that choice too, but he chose differently than Moses. By the way, if you would go to the last verse of Numbers chapter 24, after his fourth time and fourth prophecy prophecy—a blessing instead of cursing, Balak and Balaam, I guess, mutually agree that the... It's not going to work. We're just wasting our time. We might as well just go home. And in verse 25 of chapter 24, we read how it all ends. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. And if that's all we had, you would get the impression that Balak and Balaam went their own ways and never more were to have anything to do with each other. But I'm guessing that the back of Balaam's mind was still that diviner's fee. And he starts scheming, if I can't, well, let's just read. What's the very next thing the Bible records? Chapter 25, starting with verse 1. Now, Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They, that is the Moabites, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined in Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Continuing on, we find that this incredible apostasy, if you to continue reading that chapter resulted in the death by plague of 24,000 Israelites. What on earth happened? On the previous chapters, they were so faithful that the Lord was running interference for them, blocking every attempt to curse them, and he was keeping them blessed. Yet now, the very next thing we read, 24,000 die in a plague. Now, if we study the story out a little deeper, we find some very fascinating details. For example, in Numbers chapter 31, you see that the, the Lord instructed Moses to raise up an army and go after the Moabites for their trickery and for their seduction and, for their, and to, uh, to get vengeance on them. In Numbers chapter 31... We read in verse 16, now the details you can go home and read about more particularly, but I want to bring out one important point in verse 16. How did those people of God go from such strict faithfulness that the Lord was fighting their battles for them to the very next chapter they started drifting over, resulting in the death of 24,000 Israelites? How did that happen? Numbers 31, look at verse 16. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of whom? Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Where do they come up with this strategy of luring them in with the women and then the festivals and then the idol worship? And then... Apparently, they got that idea from Balaam. So you get the picture in your mind. Balaam goes home after they depart ways. And realizes, I cannot curse this people of God and thus get this diviner's fee. So instead of going home and repenting and saying, Lord, how can I be more on your side and be protecting and... Instead, he goes home and strategizes. How can I weaken their defenses and bring them down so I can help Balak and, as a result, get my fee? So apparently he goes back after they depart ways and holds a meeting with Balaam and says, Balaam, I have a new idea. Forget this direct cursing business. As long as they're faithful, it's not going to work. But have you ever thought about just inviting them over for dinner? Just bring them on over, bring out some of your most enchanting things, your most enticing women, do all the things you can, and bring them down to your level of unfaithfulness. And it works. Now, what is also fascinating is the Bible does not record whether or not Balaam received the reward. But we do know this, that even if he had received the reward, it was very short-lived. Still in verse chapter 31, now go back to verse 8. Speaking of Moses' forces that went against Moab, it said, They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. There's a sort of poetic justice that Balaam died by sword. And I don't know if he had the diviner's fee tucked away in his pocket and he was headed home with it. Or if I don't know if it was an IOU, I don't know exactly. Or maybe he had was sitting in this luxurious wealth and he was taken. But all we know is that he led the children of Israel into apostasy and then he died. And his entire reward was lived out in that space of time. We read in Steps to Christ, page 24. When the heart yields to the influence of the Spirit of God, the conscience will be quickened. And the sinner will discern something of the depth and sacredness of God's holy law, the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. Conviction takes hold upon the mind and heart. The sinner has a sense of the righteousness of Jehovah and feels terror of appearing in his own guilt and uncleanness before the searcher of hearts. He sees the love of God, the beauty of holiness, the joy of purity. He longs to be cleansed and to be restored to communion with heaven. Again, also, please note that the fear that accompanies true repentance is not merely a fear of punishment, but a fear of appearing face-to-face with Christ and regretting that you didn't choose to become more like him when mercy was still available. Basically, repentance is that state of contrition wherein if you had the opportunity, you would not repeat your sin. Not because you got caught, And not because you feared the punishment, but simply because you didn't want to grieve the heart of Jesus. You think of other great sins in the Bible, by the way, inside of the camp of Israel, inside the leadership of Israel, even the king of Israel. You think of David. David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah was heinous on a level that even now, we shudder to think of it. Even in non-Christian circles, it seems obscene and extreme. Think about it. He took for himself Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his most loyal soldiers, and when their liaison resulted in pregnancy, David orchestrated a scenario where Uriah might believe the child was his. But when that scheme failed because of Uriah's integrity, David arranged for a hopeless military engagement that killed not only Uriah, but also a number of his fellow soldiers. David committed adultery, and then he lied Then he finally killed people to cover his tracks. And for more than a full year, David lived unrepentant in his sin, until at last Nathan the prophet boldly declared his guilt to his face. And you remember the parable, and he says, Thou art the man. Now go to chapter 51 of the book of Psalms, or Psalm 51, I should say. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. And see if in David's repentance, you can mark a different tone than that of Balaam's repentance. Psalm 51. And this psalm was written particularly about his experience with Bathsheba. In fact, the little note at the beginning of verse 1 says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is about this instance. He writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now pause right there. Had he sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Had he sinned against Uriah? Most definitely. How about those other soldiers who died? His whole nation, in fact. But all of that aside, when he looks to Jesus, he said, the person I've hurt the worst is you. And done this evil in your sight. And notice carefully that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Not only does he acknowledge that he has sinned, but he acknowledges your right to punish me. Your judgment on me is correct. He's not doing this to escape punishment. He just wants to be right with God. He wants the purity of heart that only God can give. Later in Psalm 139, he would write in verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Apparently David was so repentant he didn't just say, Lord, here's this sin. He said, now while that you're here, look around the house and see if you can find anything else. I don't want to just get out of the resulting punishment of this sin. Lord, I don't want to have sin in me anymore. There might even be things I'm not aware of, but I want you to find them. Because I want to be right with you more than I want to be okay in the day of judgment. I just want to be good with you. That's a different motive. Steps to Christ 24, we are told that David saw the enmity of his transgression. He saw the defilement of his soul. He loathed his sin. It was not for pardon only that he prayed, but for purity of heart. He longed for the joy of holiness to be restored to harmony and communion with God. It was not for pardon only that he prayed. Think about the words. How many of us, even when we have sinned, our main thought, perhaps even our only thought, is forgive me so I'm not lost, or forgive me so I don't get in trouble, or forgive me so that... But David's repentance, his genuine repentance, went beyond merely pardoning me and making it okay on paper. He said, Lord, search me and make me good in person. Give me the purity that I don't even see that I need yet, but you do. Now, that might sound very nice, but one of the questions that immediately should spring to mind, at least it does to my mind, is let's just be honest. I like sin. It's fun. It's, there's a reason I'm drawn toward it. But I don't like punishment. And sometimes we negotiate. All right, I'll do as much of this as I can, but at the same time get away with this. If it were even left up to me, my repentance even would always fall short of God's glory. That my repentance would be incomplete because it would be just enough to get me out of trouble. Right? But apparently David's repentance and what our repentance should be should be going beyond mere pardon, but beyond that to purity. Lord, while you're in there, look around. Is there anything else? Is there something that you know I like, but I shouldn't? And left to my own devices, I would just keep liking it. You know, oftentimes we look to Jesus for forgiveness, but do you know we need to look for him for repentance too? We know that Christ is the only one who can forgive, but do we realize that Christ is the only one who can give us the repentance that will lead to forgiveness? We don't have it on our own. Left up to us, we'd all be Balaam talking to donkeys. I mean, I don't know if you've ever talked with a donkey, but I'm guessing there's something apropos in your life, something similar where you negotiate with God when you know his clear will, but you think, you know what, for this time, or maybe until I get clearer answers, or for just a little bit longer, or for, and you start building up these. Or do we have the courage to say, Lord, I don't even want purity, but I want to want it. Left to my own, it's not something I'm naturally drawn toward. I don't have it in me, but I know you can give it. There's a reason why in the book of Acts, chapter 5 and verse 31, the Apostle Peter explains a very important facet of our walk with Christ. I'm looking at Acts 5, 31. It records how, quote, God has exalted Jesus to his right hand to be prince and savior. And listen carefully, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Notice that both forgiveness and repentance are gifts from Christ. We don't have the repentance to offer God that he needs, that we need to offer to him. We don't have it in us. Thus we read in Steps to Christ, page 26, Christ is the source of every right impulse. He is the only one that can impart in the heart enmity against sin. Now, I can have enmity against punishment for sin, because that hurts. But to actually hate the sin itself, I don't have it in me. But neither do you. But Christ can offer it. He's the only one that can implant in our heart enmity against sin. Every desire for truth and purity, every conviction of our own sinfulness is an evidence that His Spirit is moving upon our hearts. Friends, if you recognize in your life that there are things that are wrong and you like it, praise the Lord, at least the recognition that it is wrong and that you like it is a moving of the Holy Spirit to say, yes, but you should like something different. And you might sit in there, I know I should, but I don't. (laughs) That's where the Holy Spirit's first point of contact is. He's already leading you to recognize the problem. And then you recognize the double problem. Not only do I have a sin problem, but I have a problem that I like sin and I don't want to stop. And yes, I'd love to truly repent, but I don't have it in me. Christ says, that's a gift for me too. Do you want to want it? And if you can want that much, I'll start right there. Now, I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ. I have no idea. And please don't tell me. But this study was convicting for me. I understand what it's like to wrestle with some particular sin or particular sinful tendency that you seem powerless not only to stop, but more importantly, from even wanting to stop. The change in the heart, the change in motivation comes only from Jesus. And I'm willing to guess that there are at least a few people here today who need to not give, need to give to Christ not just repentance, but you need to receive from Christ repentance to give back. Does that make sense? I'm not making an appeal today that you give repentance to Christ because you don't have it to give. The appeal today is simply. Asking Christ for the repentance you know that you need, even if you don't feel that you want it. Does that make sense? It's beyond what naturally comes to me. Because naturally I don't have it. But the Lord can change your heart. Believe it or not, he can actually give you the desires of your heart. He can make you want to be done with sin, not just afraid of the punishment that comes with sin. He can change your tastes for righteousness instead of wickedness. We read in Steps of Christ, page 36. If you see your sinfulness, do not wait to make yourself better. Praise the Lord for that. How many there are who think they are not good enough to come to Christ? Do you expect to become better through your own efforts? There is help for us only in God. We must not wait for stronger persuasions, for better opportunities or for holier tempers. We can do nothing of ourselves. We must come to Christ just as we are. So here's my appeal today. By the way, appropriately enough, our closing song today is number 327. I'd rather have Jesus than anything, including silver or gold or mansions or glory. We can think of Balaam. But while we sing that song, if there is someone here who feels a genuine, not just a sorrow for sin, but a need for the sorrow for sin. Does that make sense? Okay? Not just you feel sorry for your sin, but you recognize that you don't feel sorry for sin, and you need to. That if you need not only to return repentance from God, to God, you need to receive repentance from God, I'd ask that if you'd like to, just come down front. We're going to have a special prayer of dedication at the close. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse